Coming to you from Mount Washington in Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Jerry Stahl, who's done extensive writing for film and television, but also has written a bunch of books, including Permanent Midnight, Pur of a Love Story, Painkillers, Plain Clothes Naked, I Fatty. This year, Bad Sex on Speed came out, and another book is going to come out very soon. It's so new, I haven't even read it yet. Happy Mutant Baby Pills, a novel. Jerry... Tell me, these two books that come out in the same year, they have a relationship, and they are a relationship related to, some of your fans might not be surprised, related to drugs. It's a stretch, but yes. <laughs> but not the drugs you think of. Uh, they both came out of a trial drug treatment that I did at Cedars-Sinai to get rid of the hepatitis C I got doing a more conventional drug, heroin. And uh, one of the side effects, which inspired Bad Sex on Speed, that I basically felt like I was on bad acid for a few months. Mm-hmm. And um, in the words of Iggy Pop, who always talked about you know, the concept of some weird gift, I just used that kind of mentally defective thinking mm-hmm. to write characters who thought that way mm-hmm. and then sort of as a cheat pretend it was because of meth. <laughs> Uh, now is that is that an acceptable cheat? I I don't know enough about. Novel, yeah, you know, that's that's yeah. true. I mean, I'm not saying is it morally acceptable, but is it in terms of like drug factually acceptable? Uh, I don't know much about well, either of those enough, drugs. I've done enough speed okay. back in the day to know that the parallels right. of like inability to sleep, that mm. crazy hamster wheel thinking, and paranoia. So I had some research filed away, but uh, you know, just the incredible degree of squirreliness mm. of the, and you know, I, it was turned out. You know, it actually cured me after 20 years and nothing else worked, so I, I'm not complaining, but um, the inability to function in the world is a great asset for a novelist, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think, was it, was it Joyce? Or, don't quote me on who quoted this, but, uh, you know, who talked about um, be, writing a novel as a kind of willful psychosis. Mm. You know, the way Joyce talked about how he had a psychotic daughter, a schizophrenic daughter, and the only difference between him and his daughter was that he could write. Mm. So rather than just sit around blathering in my own head, I uh, decided to opt for a novel. Mm. Now, in Bad Sex on Speed, I mean, you, you do get the sense of being inside a, a drug experience, and one of the things really emphasized in the book is that, you know, on this stuff, everything is important, right? How, how, would, you, how would you describe that more fully? Every single thing you experience when you're on this stuff is the most important thing in the world. seems like from what I read, that's how it feels. That is a, that's a, gra- a great summation. Everything is significant, deeply meaningful. Uh, who was the one quoted, like, my piss is important? Was that Keith Moon? Or is it, who, you quote somebody in here. May, maybe it's accurate, it maybe not. But. Yeah. Um, and he's dead, so right. we'll never know if he actually said that. But he was a certainly a fame because back in those days, mods and rocker days, uh, Pete Townsend and and who you know every they were really really into the crank. Mm. Not the bathtub meth that America knows and loves. Right. It's, this is something we should also lay out. For. I'm not saying I know a lot about this, but for the listener who doesn't know a thing about drugs, you know, they maybe watched some Breaking Bad. They know meth from that. Uh, people know. People know that there's a certain segment of the population in America making meth, selling it to others, that it makes you get a lot done, I, what, what we, but, but not to the good, ultimately. You know, how do we describe this? How do you well, describe if it? If by getting a lot done, you mean taking your 1968 Chevy Impala apart in your front lawn and then keeling over before you can put it back together, you right. are getting a lot done. Right. 
Uh, but there is also a section on there uh, based on a book I just read called Dr. Feelgood about the man, the real-life doctor, who was constantly shooting up JFK and Truman Capote and Rod Serling and just a variety. I mean, JFK flew him around. Mm. And uh, it, to the extent the culture was affected and pretty much shaped, you know, Tennessee Williams, it's really, I don't want to say shocking because it's never shocking, but right. there is a sort of sub-history beneath mm. the overt history to the point where there's a theory that the reason JFK was had to be taken out was he was getting so psychotic on this um, speed and uh, opiate and steroid combination mm. that he was just sort of, it makes you hypersexual, it makes you manic, you know, all the things we want in a president. <laughs> was JFK then getting shot up with the same stuff that we think of the uh, sort of scraggly meth head of today no, using? absolutely not. He had, he had a custom designer combo uh, that all those guys had. So, no, he wasn't doing stuff made from cough medicine and match heads right. and manufactured in a trailer yes. by some skeek in Missouri. No. He was a high-end kind of guy. Right. You get a vivid you get a vivid image of the kind of person making meth mm. in bad sex on speed. I mean, it couldn't it couldn't be grimmer, could it? Like it's it's partially affected by the sort of altered perception of the narrator perhaps or not I mean the the, the the not the narrator exactly, but the the persona we're looking through, but it's also it's pretty grim anyway it's with any eyes. It's grim and you don't have to do much research because it's really one of the few growth industries in America. <laughs> And uh, there are particular physical casualties specific to meth, which are so grotesque. Uh, for example, people make it naked. There are always explosions. As, as a rule, they make it naked. Well, because they get so hot right. and crazy, and they're in the backwoods somewhere, and it's sticky. And, you know, they're in this closed environment, right. and they blow their genitalia off or their faces. So there's this sort of semi-meth cook badge of honor where you have basically no penis and no face. And really, what else are you going to do when you go for that job interview? But, you know, just keep making meth. <laughs> why, why has it become so popular in these last 20 years, seemingly? Is it because it's cheap or what? There's a lot of theories. Uh, one being nobody can survive on one job. And you can indeed stay up around the clock. Um I read, uh, it was in a, I think it was a meat pro processing plant where these guys are working 12 hour shifts mm -hmm. with, uh, obviously no health care, no days off, families to feed. And then, of course, there's the flip side of that, which is there are no jobs. And it, you know, nothing can fill your time and make you feel powerful like you're. It's accomplishing things like meth. It, yeah, I shouldn't say it makes you get things done. It makes you feel like you're getting things done. It makes you well, feel you like things done. They're just very questionable things. Right. You trivial, know. trivial pursuits. It's like that old Richard Pryor joke, you know, when I do cocaine, it make, turns me into another man, and that man wants to do more cocaine, <laughs> you know. And it is the poor man's coke, because, I mean, obviously out here in Hollywood, people are, you know, there's some element doing meth, but most of them are doing ecstasy and coke. Right. you got to go pretty far inland before you get to real meth country here, don't you? No, you got to go to Riverside. you got to go downtown. I mean, no, it's, it's all over the place. It's, just, it's a poor man's drug. Mm -hmm. 
Now, how soon into taking... also was a big gay drug for years. Oh, really? You know, that, so that I didn't big, realize. Big bathhouse, because you can, like, fuck around the clock. Ah, so you'll meet a lot of... I've met a lot of guys who ended up getting HIV because they were so manic and so crazed mm. in the moment right. that they just went for it. But you illustrate... In bad sex on speed, how pleasureless that is. It sounds like sex on speed is bad sex on speed. Like that's the kind of sex there is on speed. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's the experience of the narrator and the people in this book. I'm sure there are people to attest to their, you know, attest to their preapic <laughs> delights that <laughs> I myself did not cover in that book. But uh, you know, I am not the spokesmodel for or against uh, methadrine. So tell me a little more about how it felt being on this this medical drug you were, you were taking to to cure you. When when did it when did you realize you could use this as you could you could cast this in the role of a different drug in this book? At some point when I wasn't sleeping and what I do when I don't know what else to do in life because for me writing is slightly easier than life, mm -hmm. least of all life on that drug. Because I just started writing, and this, I'm sure you've heard this a million times, I mean, these characters started talking, this stuff started coming out, and uh, it seemed, it, it sounds like I was calculating. In, in retrospect, that what was that's what was happening. In fact, I was hearing voices in my head. Mm. It's a slim book, and it seems like yes. when, you, when you're on the, when you, you're feeling the effects of these drugs, the kind of book somebody would write on them, I would picture it being vast because they never stop. Did you have a huge amount and cut it down, or did you just write this? Well, that's like the famous story about Sartre. You know, he wrote Saint Genet, uh, and it started out as an intro. And he, you know, the, the, the existentialists love their amphetamines, <laughs> and uh, he ended up writing like a gazillion-page book about uh, Genet. I mean, here you have one with that's brief, but with brief but with sort of the maximum impact in each section and did you did you did it turn out to be did it simply turn out to be a short book That's or the did sound you, of crime fighting indeed, that yes. you hear somebody somebody's somebody's fighting crime up there somewhere they, well they're watching down here uh, anyway you were what was the question did you did the book simply come out short or did you want to cut it into a short powerful format uh, that, that's how that's how i suppose Again, I would no question. calculation uh, as james brown said hit it and quit it <laughs> and uh it came out fast and as i was writing it as i was already um sort of morphing off that kind of madness uh into the other book which was also affected by that wow. treatment which we'll get to but it came out short because i wanted the sense of like this is a wild night Right. A wild 24 hour, you know, and you reads fast. Uh, apparently, some people find it very disturbing. <laughs> Happy Mutant Baby Pills, you then, you start that after you're done feeling the effects of this stuff that get that got you riding bad sex on speed. Is that is that right? Well, I started, this came out sort of right at the beginning, and that, that book I started getting into at the end because uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, was pregnant. And they told me, right when I, first I find out she's pregnant, then I start this treatment, I'm on it for five minutes, and they say, oh, by the way, don't get within 50, we, 50 feet of a pregnant woman, and if, if, you know, she by chance touches a drop of your sweat on a sheet, this baby's going to be born, you know, purple with wheels and yes. two Ron Perlman heads. <laughs> So uh, that was crazy. So she had to, you know, we had to 
separate, which I didn't see coming for during that time, and I was on this stuff, and the 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 specific kind of metaphoric. Uh, it's, it's, it always is a tr- it's it's tricky talking about a novel without sounding pretentious because I never calculate anything, but. Mm. The reality of being on something to- so toxic that you yourself were an engine of uh, mutation uh, is, in fact, what's happening to all of us. And it, and it's and it scared me to an extent where I, of course, do what I do when I'm terrified of something, which is run straight into it, back into the burning building. And, of course, I, I researched all the possible deformities and, in fact, all the things that are already causing deformities up to and including... Once the baby is actually born and capable of eating uh, what's in breast milk, which is at this point toilet cleaner, lithium, benzene, you, you know, all your favorite household How products. Does toilet cleaner get in there? Well, because it's all washed into the water supply. Oh, I see. So anything, it's like apparently in Jacksonville, Florida, it's a great place to be depressed because it has the highest quantity of lithium in the water supply. Wow. So if you can't afford a shrink and you're really feeling suicidal, head to Jacksonville. Right. And, but that is all our, it's basically all our conditions. We have no say in the matter. Right, right, right. And you, you look at these products, even things like anti-stick on... Uh, or things like Pam, you know, all these things you never think about are completely carcinogenic. Shampoos, soaps, and it was an odd way to write a novel because as opposed to having a narrative in my head in the beginning, I had information in my head around which I had to construct a narrative. So if that makes sense. It does, and I want to get this feeling down. You you then simultaneously felt like you were dangerous because you were sweating the stuff that could be deformed babies and that the world was out the other end of that but yeah in fact that's what we're all doing it's just that i did it voluntarily right 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 the rest of us didn't sign on for it you felt dangerous like that and then also then then went on to feel like the whole world was killing you as well like the whole world is i'm toxic also the whole world is toxic so when viewed through the lens of i'm having a child here yes 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 and all this stuff is pouring into her little system and it's uh, you can either be inconsolable or just straight up terrified because there's really not you know you can try and eat the right foods and all that but you know it ain't gonna happen you know monsanto does not want you to have uh organic healthy (laughs) vegetables and fruits so this is this is a very thorough fear that underlies happy mutant baby pills i mean it's it's a novel written it's a novel written not not necessarily out of a fear but generated by terror by sure generated by terror to put it bluntly it's straight up and then with all that information you realize that like obama will appoint somebody to run the fba he was like a former secretary of monsanto Hmm. and you just realize it's all happening and you can be a victim or you can run screaming into the night well scribbling a novel mm-hmm. so in, in band sex on speed you describe how on this stuff you everything is connected you see connections everywhere Every, there's nothing is disconnected from anything else everything means something relative to everything else to you yes the, the answer talking to you but then the more situ- about you more right, likely more, probably about <laughs> you 
And, you know, the situation you describe that led up to writing Happy Mutant Baby Pills, it's like you're seeing connections, but it's not because you're crazy on a drug. You're no. just seeing a lot of things that might be well, real. Who am I to judge? <laughs> I mean, I, I've done enough. It's been years since I put a needle in my neck, but I'm sure there are residual effects. Uh, nobody comes out a winner. But um, in this case, the drugs, as I say, were of the hidden, involuntary variety of which uh, America, you know, is kind of leading the way. So you have, this year alone, a novel about voluntarily taken drugs, bad sex on speed, and involuntarily taken drugs, happy mutant baby pills. I mean, they is that a distinction that makes sense to make? Yes and no, because the two people in happy mutant baby pills, the, the narrator himself uh, is also a heroin addict who is with a woman who is also injecting heroin at the same time bemoaning the complete chemicalization, if that's even a word, of, of the planet and particularly her environment and is driven crazy by it in the sense that the sort of helplessness one feels. Um, you can listen to Pacifica, you can stay up all night and, you know, chat with Gary Null about... Uh, all that is happening and you, and you know but it's like running up a down escalator to stay in the middle because I think it was last week the New York Times was talking about how I forget which wing of the government or which scientific organization basically declared the atmosphere a carcinogen mm. Mm. so there you go right it's, it's that's certainly not a good sign but then no. I hold your breath right <laughs> indeed uh, and I, I wonder though you get this, these facts like breast milk contains toilet cleaner and those kinds of things. But then I always wonder when I hear that stuff, that sounds bad. But then maybe, maybe this is, am I getting scared of something that's below the threshold where it's going to kill us all? Or is there, should I not even be thinking that way? Should, should I be thinking it's all, and any is too much? Do you know what I mean? Like I could sure. panic about a lot of things that aren't going to affect me. You know, smoking a cigarette a week is not going to kill anybody, probably. There might be, there's probably a case where somebody died from smoking one cigarette a week, but not going to be many. It depends because 60 years ago, you know, they came out with asbestos filters. Right. But, you know, as regards breast milk, I mean, who's to say? On the other hand, there's the convenience factor. Mm. You could just aim it into a toilet and squirt. Right. Save having to go to uh, the 99 cent store sure. and, 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 you know, get your Dow chemically made toilet mm -hmm. product. What do you definitely a silver lining? <laughs> yes, indeed. What, what do you understand more about a place when you understand its drug culture? You know, here we are in Los Angeles. What 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 does someone know about Los Angeles when they know its when they know the world of its the worlds of its drugs? Well, that's a great question, and I I would say that in much the same way that say veterans or convicts or cancer survivors or sexual abuse survivors, uh, or alcoholics, drug addicts, former drug addicts. It's a subculture, and it's a way to see the world. Bikers see the world a certain way. Uh, it's as if you could be airdropped into any city in the world, and you would find your people. And an interesting way to view the world is any one of those subcultures has a key to a particular door, to a particular version of the city that you inhabit. Mm. If you're a heroin addict, 
you're buying it in a balloon in somebody's mouth, generally somebody under 16 so that they won't be convicted as a uh, an adult down there on the corner of Crack and 8 Ball and Pico Union where it used to be. Or at the time, I knew of these sort of more high-end rock and roll guys who had the limo deliver their heroin to them. Not something I was ever right. privy to, but uh, I hear tell. And so even then, you know, you see the strata and, and the divisions and, for lack of a better word, the class divisions which apply. So in that sense, it's as good as any right. so a way to see, the, to see a city. Every, you have every city in the world. You have every drug that is widely done. You multiply those together, and that's how many versions you can potentially see if you're a drug user. If you're, if you're into multiple drugs, you can then see multiple, multiple underworlds of that city. Underworld sounds so dramatic. Is that the appropriate word? It's all underworld now. Uh, it's a great word because it's so exotic. And, you know, you picture guys in hats doing, uh, you know, selling little packets to school children or on dark street corners in a noir film. But in fact, uh, it's not that under. If you have eyes to see, for, ex for example, back in the crack days, you would all, and you can still, if you go to downtown LA or other sort of crack centric locations, you know, you see guys walking along the street looking down because part of these uh, really insanity but predictable dementia of crack is you're always looking down trying to find it on the floor ah, yes. or on the sidewalk someone might have dropped it hence the term carpet mining ah, yes. which is you know guys in motor was picking through carpets and at least you know half the people who ended up in hospitals for crack mm. ended up there because they were taking paint chips off the walls and throwing them in their pipe oh jeez because they thought that there might be some crack on the paint because chip it, lo it looked like it's white oh, and it's kind of oh, they, crumbly and the dust you know, of the paint seemed close enough desperate i mean when i was when i had the bright idea at one time to uh, get off heroin by doing crack i would i would go downtown uh, to macarthur park and, you know i'd cop and I'd, and i'd realize i what i'd copped was in fact like a soap chip oh, which would just bubble up completely you know your last 15 but but you know the, no way to tell before well not before but the insanity is like, I think I'm going to do it anyway, because just in case. <laughs> I mean, I remember sitting with the guy. I used to live uh, for about five minutes in the corner of Coangan Melrose, uh, <laughs> above a uh, pest control company. <laughs> and one day we were holed up there, and we had just bought some dope, which was clearly shoe polish. Because no, okay. we dropped it, and sure enough, it was just, you know, there might be... <laughs> that, off, that off chance. So, you know... As William Burroughs said, you know, it ain't the drug that kills you, it's the lifestyle, uh, you know. We talked before recording a little bit about MacArthur Park, as you mentioned, and I, as I say, I bike by there every day. I biked, really? yeah, yeah, you know, here I, I had to go downtown first, so uh -huh. I biked past MacArthur Park, and it's like, it's totally innocuous. It's a little bit, some days it's grungier than others, yeah. but it's just, you would never be afraid of it. That's so it. you're telling me MacArthur Park was where you would go oh when God. what? When you needed what? Drugs. Yeah, drugs, but like... What what era what era was it the druggiest the, uh, what could be relied upon to, you could find there you would always find crack mm. or heroin mm. and also in the in the surrounding neighborhood Fourth and Bonnie Bray Sixth and yes. Union but in the park itself I used to park every day mm. you know sort of waltz down into the park dodge the cops get what I would get and leave and um, 
that was the reality. But is this like when I go there to buy a pupusa being grilled on the street? You know, you know where you're going. You can identify who you who you're going to buy from. Right. You go get it and you leave. Mm-hmm. Like same same deal, different exactly different substance. Like a pupusa, if you were going to heat up a pupusa in a spoon and shoot it into your jugular. Right. Um, but it was a very very crazed and kind of electric atmosphere. You would go there and there there was a uh, kind of walkway underground from one part of the park to another, basically an underground concrete tunnel. The halves across Wilshire? Like, we, does it do a tunnel under Wilshire? No, I, I would be lying if I say my memory is completely uh, reliable, sure. but I'm 96% sure that it actually exists and this is a real memory. Right. But you would hear just these ungodly, infernal screams mm-hmm. 24-7 and... Who knows? Right. Even I didn't go down there, even when I was getting my mail in MacArthur Park there for a while, oh, so to speak. Uh, it was just a madhouse. Mm. What was going on? Is it just one of these areas where the city as a whole decided, we're going we're gonna to just not let civilization be there anymore? A city did what, you know, it, it's ever thus. Mm. I mean, people were getting busted white and left. Uh it was Pico very intense gangs. It was uh, basically an 18th Street ruled it, mm. and uh, they were very that you didn't get ripped off that much, and it was always you were buying from kids. Oh, I see. And then later, uh, I had a connection who was uh, a woman, you know, from just a lovely Mexican family from whom I would cop and you know help the kid with his like arithmetic homework right 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 because it's a culture and a living and a way to survive and mm. you know you take this sort of bullshit morality out of it and it's just it's just another business right you, you see things more clearly when you do take that bullshit morality out but it, this reminds me of I was in Mexico City a little while ago recording an interview with a guy who was who wrote a book about the city, and he was saying... Uh, who was that? It was a guy named Kurt Hollander. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a book called Several Ways to Die in Mexico City. And uh, he had a thing he said to me which resonated. He said, a culture, is, a culture is a set of survival strategies. So when you're talking about a drug culture, you're talking about... Are you talking about accumulated survival strategies of certain people, certain place, with certain desires? It's hard to tell... The difference between a survival strategy, I mean, one man's, that's a great definition and a fascinating take, but in fact, one man's survival strategy is another man's exploitation strategy Ah. because, you know, you've got the parasite and you've got the host and it's hard to say who's, who is who and, and why that's all happening. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned survival strategy because on the individual level, the particular key to drug addiction is that it's a survival skill that will end up killing you. Uh, it's a short-term so survival. It can be short, can be long, but all my survival skills ended up killing me. Time out for the helicopter flyover. Yes. See, if we were on meth right now, we would be convinced not only could they see through the roof right down on us, but <laughs> that they were circling back and we would be, you know. We would do what about it? You name it, we'd we'd be high, you know, we'd like blacken the windows, we would start hiding stuff, which we would later be unable to find and tear the house apart, uh, including the walls and flooring. Uh, It it would look like Gene Hackman's apartment in the conversation, and he was looking for the bug, and he tore the floorboards up. Everything taken apart. Yeah. Now, what what had been in in this world teach you about Los Angeles in the thick of it? 
it taught me that the LA of reality, or at least that reality, was so different from the media version. Um, the sort of West Side, never go east of La Brea version of reality. But that being said, there's an you know, incredible wild ass dope scene in Venice as well. <laughs> I would uh, imagine. And the valley, so, you know, fuck me. But uh, it really teaches you that just specific to L.A., which has its own particular cliche attached to it, it's just a whole other world and the sort of peripheral, the peripheral showbiz types. The type, you know, I think the archetype for this was uh, Day of the Locust. You know, he wasn't writing about movie stars. He was writing about all the sort of weird hangers-on and wannabes and almost worse. <laughs> and then, of course, the audience itself who secretly hated the movie stars and, riot and tried to kill them. I mean, it's right. all there. And I don't think that much has changed. Mm. It's also an L.A. that is not Anglo-centric. Mm. And, you know, I was out there in a world where I wasn't, running it you know this right. was this wasn't uh, the world of crossroads mm. and uh you know rubbing elbows with spielberg's <laughs> children you know and uh, dustin hoffman's kids on the way to lunch it was a whole other side of the planet and i remember even um i used to teach up at a juvenile hall up in silmar and i would talk to some kids from la basically they're waiting to turn it it was for violent offenders waiting to turn 18 and get shipped off mm. And, you know, I don't think I ever met one kid who had been to the beach. Ever. They'd never even gotten close. And this is L.A. Right. And who knows about that? That is, you know, that runs the media or talks, you know, talks in general about things. Um, So it was, was, in retrospect, it's fascinating and insightful. When you're in it, I'm not making these lofty cultural (laughs) insights. There's no mental bandwidth available to do that when you're living it. You've got to, you've got to, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I didn't know it was research at the time. I didn't realize being a dope fiend was a great career move. You know, I was just sort of a washed up guy in his 30s hustling around doing what I could do, you know. I, I'm not going to ask you much more about buying drugs in MacArthur Park, but you got you got a view of a Los Angeles. I still have some names. Okay. <laughs> really? Some, some addresses if you need. <laughs> yeah, you saw. You need to handle yourself. You saw. You saw. I'll judge. Indeed, indeed, it's it's a uh, it's a free exchange of information here. I like to think so. You saw a Los Angeles that was not the West Side industry capital. I Los Angeles. I mean, no, I've also seen yeah, that. Yeah, you saw that too. Which I'm I'm going to say you saw both ends of those mm-hmm. spectrum, both both ends of that spectrum. But they're they're both extreme ends. Although in a way, the the drug culture is more representative of the city as a whole. Is it not? Well, I'd say there's a little more honor in the drug culture. Ah, you know, people rip you off, it's to your face. Mm. You know, uh, when you have a gun at your head, you know where you stand. You don't say, yeah, I love it, and you never hear from them again. But that said, without an, an iota of irony or bitterness, it's just how it is. Mm. But um, it's funny you were talking about Bourdain, though, because I have to say, what I love about him, you know, he is just, just such a kind of visionary hipster guy and uh yet he does have this audience of uh completely suburban foodies which is fantastic especially if you know the guy because he's so funny whereas i was once told by a publisher my first publisher the reason 
my books don't make money is that my audience shoplifts. Ah, so yes, you know, they're not spending the money. Well, we move the merchandise, but it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't clock in with a. Uh, Profit. Merchandise moves. I, and to catch you up, listeners, uh, before we were recording, I brought up this quote that you, you might have seen. Uh, Anthony Bourdain blurbed both these two books that came out this year with the quote, Jerry Stahl should either get the Pulitzer Prize or be shot down in the street like a dog. And that that is vivid. And you guys know each other. You guys have some you guys share a few audience members, I would imagine, right? That's I. I was saying. I, like I think, to think yeah. so, but I. Uh, I cannot uh, in any way boast a fraction of the uh, numbers that the great uh, Mr. Bourdain has. Mm. But I, yeah, I did. Uh, no reservations. A couple times we ate at uh, Musso and Frank's. Oh yes. And we ate at uh, Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles mm. and some other undisclosed location where we got uh, <laughs> tortillas on the uh, deep, uh, maybe Boyle Heights. I'm not oh, sure. sure. Yeah. It's it's one of those fascinating things. People, especially you know, food shows mm-hmm. or travel shows, they come to Los Angeles. People say, "Nah, they're never going to get this right. That guy doesn't know what he's doing. They don't know Los Angeles. They're just they're going to go to places we all hate." Uh, Anthony Bourdain, we all trusted to get it right, and he seems to have. I mean, he came to my neighborhood, Absolutely. my neighborhood, Koreatown, which yeah. nobody gets right. He did. So well, what's what's he, he got there? He asked locals, right? But it's funny you were talking about subcultures before, and. Uh, the way he sees the world through food, I would argue it's it's absolutely as specific and weird and um, revealing, you know, as as drugs. Mm. Uh, you know, if, you know, there's plenty of parallels to be drawn. I would well, think. Yes, and I'm sure all the audience members will make them. <laughs> if we don't have to, but absolutely true. Mm. It's it's a place that, I mean, more more than food show is more than people mm-hmm. writing about where to eat here. It's a place that is just just not easy to understand for anybody, is it? I've never attempted to understand it and certainly no claim to. That may but, be the, uh, the only way. Yes, well, you know, is uh, you know, I'm so old now, I'm almost embarrassed to still be alive, but one thing you realize is that, you know, understanding is always a con, mm-hmm. and uh, whatever grasp I have in L.A. is based on, you know, my particular weird rady you know whatever gravitational forces are whipping me around at the, at the time but um it is i don't think that the perception of it as um the typical california full of kooks and you know i know i you know i for some, whatever reason you know my books do better in, in france than they do here and when i tell people i'm from los angeles you know, people really respond to it a lot more than when I used to go over there and I was from New York because really? it, it it's a city that really engages the imagination and obviously through the movies, but, um, you know, noir is so revered over there. So the the, the Chandler uh, mystique that defines that, like the French, you know, they just, they, they cannot get enough. And, you know... Lucky for me, they love fuck-ups and uh, uh, underbelly guys, so, you know, I've got that diploma, and uh, L.A.'s is a very particular flavor, because, you know, when you turn over the rock that is Hollywood, there's going to be a different kind of millipede than there are in New York, or Copenhagen, or Moscow. Yes, indeed. Do you have much interaction with your French readers? Do Do you get a sense of what they're tapping into when you're writing? Uh, to the extent that I could make myself understood or be understood, uh, I, have, I have a great translator over there, who uh, Alexis Nolent, who uh, goes by the name of Matt. So he's also 
uh, as Matt's, he's a big graphic novelist. In fact, uh, he does this thing called The Killer. There was just a Stallone movie based on it, which for which we will never blame the author. Uh, but, you know, I, I got to sort of go around to a lot of the places you don't get to go when you're just some, you know, mook American writer going to uh, festivals. Right. And, yeah, they, they, they kind of love it. You know, they kind of... There's an American kind of badass to them that they associate with the streets. And, and L.A., to them, is much fresher, arguably maybe... To a fresher cliche, but uh, you know, a much fresher and interesting world, because people don't know about the other side of the movies. They 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 want to know about that other L.A. You know, um, that in fact, obviously, it's all over the media now. And now that America has made a spectator sport of prisons, you know, so that MSNBC is like prison porn every weekend, they get to see a lot more gangsters and a lot more gang members. But it's 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 still an exotic world, and uh, I'm not the representative white man, so uh, you know they they gave me a little play. It is there. There is a sense of it's still, in some sense, in some sense of the imagination, a frontier here for people who come from Europe. I mean, I talk to a lot of Englishmen who move mm -hmm. here, and they're equally enraptured with it in ways that a native often is isn't, right? Ah, that's a great point. It, it is a frontier, though. God knows a frontier, you know, knows. God knows what it is a frontier too. I, <laughs> yes. What do you think is the frontier? I, it's uh, personally what fascinates me is that it's sort of it's it's a frontier for whatever you want it to be. People sort of make one hundred percent their own reality here. You know, it's, uh, it's one well put, every yeah. person. You know, eight million people, eight million Los Angeleses, right? Yeah, that that is a great way to put it. Um, it is true that in New York, you know, you sort of move and become part of the hive whereas in LA it's the polar opposite you move and become just this lonely little isotope because it's 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 not a city where you are forced to kind of bundle together like that and uh, as a result it's a great place. I, I just find it a great place to be writing fiction mm -hmm. and is it is it a great place to to set a story as well sure mm -hmm. but I think it was Craig this writer Craig Nova who you may or may not know. He wrote a great book called Turkey Hash and Tornado Alley and um, a lot of great books. But uh, he once made a remark that stuck with me, which is basically, you know, landscape is character. Mm. And and he's from L.A. And uh, it's absolutely true. Mm. In, in the new novel, in the Happy Mutant Baby Pills, it seems like these characters are in more than anything else a landscape of poison that's it's is is the is the the toxicity the the overwhelming quality of the setting of this book the toxicity isn't specific to la but it, it's, it's a toxicity of the, of the, the world as a modern world modern world sure absolutely it uh it kind of seeps into everything uh most literally the cells mm. of the protagonists uh and their victims mm. uh but also in, into the thinking. Um, the, the, the character in here is one that I liked writing because he was the kind of guy who as a kid really wanted to be a writer and read the backs of cereal boxes. And then he grows up and ends up writing the backs of cereal boxes. You know, <laughs> he's that kind of failed writer who has these sort of gigs that, you know, I sort of apprenticed in a lot of ways. So I could... It's, it's 
not specifically uh, autobiographical, but, you know, he ends up writing the side effects for pharmaceutical drugs. Mm. His claim to fame is that he's the guy who came up with anal leakage. Mm. Because, you know, if you put anything that seeps... Just sounds so disgusting, but yes, leakage sir. is kind of like around the house. You're right, anything, you know, anything it's could leak. Kind of friendly. <laughs> so, and you know, he gets a, a Christian dating website, and uh, and so it's it's about this the other kind of writer, sort of in the right. sense that there's another version of L.A. besides Hollywood. Right. There's another kind of writing of guys, and this just always fascinates me when I'll I, I remember I had to. Uh, this is a disgusting image, but. You know, for some medical procedure, I had to I had to go buy fleet enemas. You know, so I go to CVS and I'm reading like the instructions, and the, I'm thinking, you know, some guy had to get up in the morning, yes. go to his office, and sit down. What do we got today? You know, well, it's fleet enema day. You know, let's dive in. And uh, you know, I'm so fascinated by that kind of writing and right. and that level of um, the 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 guy who knows he's a poet. Right, but he's writing the fleet anima instructions. Yes, you know the, the one who is—is is that, is that what constitutes failure? Is is not meeting your ambitions, or what? What do you what do you think of when you're writing a character who could get called a failure? What do you think they, that means they are? Well, failure is a prism. I mean, there's so many sides to it, right. but you have to view it through the point of view of the character. Right. It's, it's always subjective through them what failure is. There's no objective failure. Yeah, I mean, I know no names, please, but I mean, I know. You know, a handful of arguably uh, world-class movie stars, and you know, who all, uh, you know, who wake up three in the morning, staring at the ceiling, wondering what the hell happened, and feeling like less than successes. Did they want to be something other than a world-class movie star? It's no, like, oh it's god, I wish that, I was something that else. Sense of failure is what drives a lot of people. Now, whether it drives the guy writing the fleet enema, right. uh, <laughs> in the same way that it drives some box office name, well, you know, that might be a stretch, but. Uh, it's definitely one thing to make a living at something you hate mm. uh, or something you don't want to be doing, but uses the same muscles. Right. I got great advice from this, uh, I think it was, uh, might have been Tobias Wolf or his brother Jeffrey, said, you know, don't make a living using the same muscles you do with y- your art, ah. such as it is. And of course... Did I listen to that? No. You know, I'm always, I have no skills. I can only write. So that's, that's what I do. But as a result, there are periods when like, you know, I was writing the fake sex letters for penthouse or, uh, you know, but on the other hand, you find a way, you know, you find a way to tell yourself you're making art, to tell yourself your voice is out there and it, it kind of scratches the itch. Right. It's like at least I'm working out the muscle to continue that analogy. At least I'm yeah. keeping it going yeah. and keeping it clenching or whatever. Yes. Speaking of fleet enemies, <laughs> yes. And uh, as a result, people will not injure themselves if right. you do your job properly. <laughs> it's more fascinating, isn't it, when somebody you've, – you've got a lot of people who are doing a day job, as they say, and phoning it in, not doing, not doing great, not doing poorly enough to lose the job. But when somebody's doing a job they hate to survive, but inadvertently – really succeeding at it that's even more interesting isn't it well it's it's a very interesting thing i i will use myself as an example i was a very very fucking pretentious young man i didn't publish a book till i was 40 but i sort of through a variety of 
miscues ended up writing TV mm -hmm. because I married a woman who needed a green card for three grand. She was a producer. I ended up writing Alf. Yeah. Now, now I would say, hey, sitcom, great, whatever. It's writing your vagina. Then I was such a fucking snob that I had like contempt for. I also completely fucked it up and only wrote two of them. Uh, uh, Though I seem to be known for it, so my tombstone will, in fact, read, he only wrote two Alfs. Is, is that what they tend to bring up in interviews, as they say? And they, he wrote Alf, and he wrote <laughs> well, also Permanent so Midnight. Funny. I'll tell you uh, a grotesque and embarrassing uh, writing story. You know, when I got Permanent Midnight, uh, I was broke. I didn't have a computer, so somebody gave me some heinous Mac knockoff, made, <laughs> oh my. which I don't even think there are any. It was made yes. in Australia. It was like... I don't know, JoJo or Haymate or some like ridiculous fucking brand. And uh, I got the spacing wrong. Hmm. So what I thought was double space hmm. was one and a half space. Oh, okay. So already I was long. I had like six, seven hundred pages. But when they printed out, I had like, I don't know, like thirteen hundred pages. It was ridiculous. Oh. So it got edited down from a story in which writing for TV was a tiny portion and there was a lot more about just living on the street right. obviously for a publisher the commercial hook was you know hey moonlighting Sybil right. Shepherd yes. uh, so all that <laughs> kind of wild ass street life got edited out yeah. the TV stuff gets left in and uh, it's like oh yuppie gone bad it's like wait wait that wasn't Yes, that uh, seemed to be the. I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but that seemed to be the, especially the angle of the movie was Yuppie Gone Bad. Was, was am I remembering right? Well, uh, I did not write the movie, right. uh, so I was a different kind of asshole in the book in real life than I was in the movie. But uh, yeah, the, you know, you could say that. I suppose. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a TV writer, so as a result, because you know, I used to be a journalist, so and a. You know, would write about stuff in a critical way. So, you know, I get it. You know, you got to peg somebody. So, uh, once that sobriquet TV writer is around your neck, it's like, you know, suddenly it's like, ah, well, he's not a serious writer. He's a TV right, writer. Right. But it's, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> Hasn't hasn't that changed though? I mean, these oh, these now, days in Los yeah, Angeles, TV a TV writer is one of the most serious writers kidding, you can especially be. Especially now, yeah, right. that's the irony. Right. That is the irony. I was uh, I was whining like a little bitch back in the day about it, but uh, <laughs> now it's like, are you kidding me? The best writing in the world's on TV. Right. Fantastic. In the, in the yeah. days of Alf, it was a different. It was well, not. Alf was great too. It's yeah, just I haven't seen I, it in a long time. Maybe. <laughs> uh, they could pay me to write it. They couldn't pay me to watch it. But uh, you know, no, I was just. A, fucked up junkie. I don't know what the hell I wrote. I had never even seen a script before. Mm. I think I thought people just stood in front of a camera and talked. What oh, did I know? I, uh, I, I certainly never went to film school. Mm. I was a pretentious young wannabe literary person. Mm. Um, so that's how it went. The situation of suddenly making a lot of money has never helped anybody, no matter what their inclinations, has it? Yes, it has helped many people. It has, ultimately. I just mean suddenly going from Going from a little bit of money to a whole lot of money quickly. That's what I emphasize. Well, I'm not saying it won't at the same time kill you. Right. But uh, listen, not having to worry about your rent, right. which I've had to, to right. sweat for much of my life, maybe right. not now, that's huge. Right. I mean, it, it's always, it's usually people with money who say that money doesn't solve any problems. Mm. But you know, when you're dead ass broke and you're hustling and it just wears there's a just a right 
punishing heaviness. I see what you mean. Now. Go from struggling. Yes. I, I wish I could. You know, it probably sounds better to say, "Yeah, you know, it's, it'll kill you," but it does kind of kill you. I mean, look right. at Fitzgerald or a million other examples. But at the same time, um, it saves you from another from a dozen other different kinds of death. Right. That's. I, I. I certainly don't mean going from no money or where you're going hungry to having money enough. Mm -hmm. But we just the, the what's fascinating to me is is more. I mean, to put it in general terms, when somebody just gets. Oh, yeah. A lot of resources thrown at them, what's many more than they had before. Because you have this choice, Absolutely like, oh, who true. am I now? And, and I am a great example. I mean, I, you know, I, there are so many ways to fuck up your life mm. when you have money that are not available to you when you right. don't have money. Uh, fortunately, when I, you know, started making a first chunk of money, I was, you know, off of heroin, so that was no longer an issue. But... Um, God knows what kind of damage could have been done. Mm -hmm. It's 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 an old saying, I guess. Getting getting a lot of money, money, getting rich, what have you. It makes you it makes you more of whatever you already are. A more a, a more intensified version is is that is that something you can agree with? Yes, you have the opportunity to be a bigger insert word here. Right. You but know. Maybe if you're if you're not so bad, maybe you'll just be not so bad on a grand scale and that's okay that could happen but it could also be that in your not so badness you'll find some opportunities that you didn't have when you were mm. a slightly right. less uh, fortunate not so bad person right right in, in, indeed now the i want to make clear to the listeners you know, what what is what is the what what's the we're talking about this before going on mike what is the uh, what is the goal of the protagonists here in in Happy Mutant Baby Pills? What are they trying to do? At the at the bottom rung, survive. Yes. Uh, the female protagonist wants to really make an impression on the on on the the, the capitalist overlords who are the ones, in fact, rendering everyone chemically uh, toxed, if that's a verb, and um, essentially destroying, you know, planet, soul, and body. Right. So by way of protesting this, she, um, <clears throat> excuse me, she imbibes, consumes, injects, eats every over and under the counter drug, mm. additive experiences, you know, all this, while pregnant, right. she will breathe all the fumes you're not supposed to be. She just does everything right. from the vast kind of uh, smorgasbord of, you know, death that um, is out there for us mm -hmm. by way of producing the most mutant baby she can as her way of protesting capitalism. Tell me, tell me about the process of learning In exactly. Mind, it's a vaguely political book, but... Right. Or it's, not so vaguely. Well, certainly, yeah, you, you can, I can see that. But uh, the process of learning what exactly all this would do to a person. Tell me about the research you had to do there. Well, it was crazy making because much of the research was done, as I think I mentioned, while uh, there was a baby in utero, yeah. uh, half of which I was genetically responsible for. Which you couldn't go 50 feet near during that time, well, right? Well, was that? Yeah. yeah which is the more overt aspect of it, but beneath that it was just the reality that everybody faces, even if they're not on uh, a pharmaceutical test pilot program. Right. Uh, to get rid of a drug, I mean, get rid of a disease that I got from injecting drugs. I mean, who knew bus station toilet water, you know? Oh, uh, we used to all bleach our needles so I didn't get HIV. That's why 
you know, I was lucky I only got hepatitis C. But the reality is uh, she is protesting that state of affairs that we're all guinea pigs now. It's a we're all Monsanto byproducts at this point. It's, it's a fascinating form of protest because do do something it's almost people have been saying this for so long i mean the 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 more the more media outlets we have the more somebody just doing something strange and risky can take the spotlight can't they it can but at the same time we're unshockable right there's that so it's you could sort of come out even but the the unshockability what what sorts of things brought that unshockability home to you have brought that home to you over the years like you you know nothing is shocking us anymore what what's something you what's something you've noticed just people not reacting to the same way they would if if we were shockable well you can go from the obvious to the arcane but i mean go listen to you know lenny bruce was killed for saying fucking his act you know they drove him out took away his cabaret license hounded him till he was like 200 pounds and dead on a toilet and, and they wouldn't let him work so all this stuff that we take for granted, um, there's that. Yes. When I was going to school as a young, tiny little 50s guy, because uh, <laughs> I, I have survived that long against my own expectations, uh, I mean, if you would have seen a woman walking down the street in a fucking leotard, you'd have thought she had lost her mind. You know, you'd be falling out of a window. Uh, you know, that, which is such a silly example but it's just from that to twerking i mean miley cyrus wants to be shocking guess what the obviousness of trying to be shocking right. is so unshocking right you know somebody remember streaking i mean how fucking quaint was that uh you know it's like anything it's exposure you know i wrote a porn film once that uh i remember being on set and you'd think oh my god i'm on a porn film you know what by day three you're like having cockroach races behind the set because wow. you know one more like mayo shot and you're like yawn you yes. know this <laughs> becomes nothing more boring than, or mechanical than yeah, that it's just okay well right 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 that's not romantic <laughs> do, do you see this as in some sense cyclical or are we just aiming toward the ultimate unshockability and there we will come to rest it's a great question uh well, which one would you hope for if that was the choice that we oscillate or that we well, just I hope stop we could always be shocked oh, i see you know i hope that the, the well, some, yeah well something always shock us there is no bottom as hubert selby used to say the bottom is bottomless <laughs> uh yeah you know uh it's sort of like at the end the most wild ass thing you can do in bed is the missionary position because <laughs> oh my god isn't that what the cleavers did right. uh speaking of i mean you talk about unshockability if we had a sitcom now a family friendly this is before your time show like leave it to beaver which sure. you probably don't even remember i've, I've seen it i mean it was in reruns how but. about the fact that jerry mather's character was named beaver cleaver yeah you know i, I, I mean, wondered about it think about a vagina slicing uh, name oh, for a God. little boy now, and you know what? It would have to be cable, <laughs> <laughs> and it wouldn't even be shocking. But right. it's just, you know, that's. I guess that would be retro shock, which sure. is a whole other level. As you find out the levels of reality you didn't see at the time. I, I do like the concept of retro shock, and it's. It seems like the with when people get less shockable, you know, there's less 
you've obviously you get fewer opportunities to shock when you're writing a novel. I'm I'm pretty sure that some people were startled by what they read about in Permanent Midnight, uh, for example. But reading Bad Sex on Speed, if you handed this to somebody in, in 1960 and told them to read it, depending on who they were, they 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 would probably be, be troubled. I feel like it's an opportunity to fascinate. I'm reading this book. I'm thinking I've never had any experiences like these, mm-hmm. but is this? Why does it do that? This is what it feels like. You know, I'm very fascinated by just flatly knowing what it feels like. I'm not thinking, oh my God, what's what is what what's what's going on? Mm-hmm. But I genuinely genu- genuinely want to know, and that's more interesting as a writer, isn't it? That you're you're not just spooking me or grossing me out. You're not doing those things like you're describing gross things. You are making me fascinated, though, and that's. That's better, isn't it? I don't know if it's better. I think what it, it's it's very gratifying to me that you feel that. So in that sense, it's fantastic. But the only thing shocking now, I would say, is the truth. Ah, I see. So on an internal level, maybe I'm giving you an experience because I'm a visceral writer, which mm. is not particularly in vogue at the moment, but that's how it shakes down. Mm. Uh, so if you can feel what the, those characters feel, that's great. On the other hand, you have a Jeremy Scahill documentary about our secret wars and the fact that soldiers in Afghanistan night raid a village, shoot and kill two pregnant women, and in front of the survivors and their children, dig the bullets out so they won't have the evidence. That's pretty shocking, but all it is is truth. Right. There's a bit of a, a conflict there. You know, you you want to a documentary like that. You you know, you want the truth to be told in it, but you also don't want people to be desensitized. That you want them to still react like that. Maybe that's something we ought to do something about. You know what I mean? Sure. There's, but yet you have to. Uh, there's there's much to be told, but also the more you tell, the more people get used to it, which Absolutely is an issue. True. It's it's yeah. I mean, to take the most obvious example, there was a time when school shootings would you know right. It would be, you know, just inconceivable. And now it's like ho fucking hum. So I think the art of it as a writer, not that I'm trying to shock, but trying to make anybody feel anything in, to use your word, you know, our desensitized era is no mean feat. Right. It's, but it's certainly, you can sense that it's still possible, not only among your French readers. I mean, you still get the sense, this is not this is not an impossible goal. You can make people feel stuff, certainly. Well, it's tricky. I think there's two kinds, or at least, but, you know, art writing can be divided in two ways. There's the kind, the sort of that very gratifying formulaic, where you kind of get the good feeling from the resolve you know you're going to get. Right. There's that. I've always been attracted, you know, sort of having come of age as a writer in the 70s in the, the era of black humor uh, with, you know, the Stanley Elkins and Bruce J. Friedman and Terry Southern and, and even earlier, not of that school, but maybe a Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. I, I prefer the kind that disturbs. I see. Um, Tell me some things that disturbed you as a young reader. I remember reading The Dream Life of Balzo Snell, which is the first, and I was 16, maybe I was 15, by Nathaniel West. And at some point, as a 15 or 16-year-old, I came across the sentence, written while sniffing the forefinger of my left hand. (laughs) And I remember thinking, what the fuck? A, that is just, like, 
what is that? Right. And second, it's like, I didn't even know you're allowed to say things like that. Ah, I see. You know, yes, yes, um, yes. obviously. That goes in a book? What? Yeah, it's like, what, what, you know, it's so creepy. Like, what does that even allude to? Right. But it was just a tossed off, you know, Nathaniel West writing his first novel uh, as a college student. And um, I loved that. I, I just, I loved, you know, what I love to hear, and if possible, I, I love the unspeakable. Mm, that's right. Mm. You know, saying the unsayable. Mm. That's what appeals to me. Mm. Whether it's a character's internal machinations or whether it's a Jeremy Scahill revealing that we dug bullets out of freshly dead flesh mm. of pregnant women. How do you find... How do you find out what's unsayable? There's plenty unsayable still, I'm sure, but it's finding out, knowing what the rules are. Rules are for what you can and can't say is more difficult now, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely, mm. absolutely, and that's why I don't think there are any rules for it. But when you feel that sort of slap across the face mm. from a movie or a photograph or a a, a book or anything. Um, it's fantastic because, in a sense, you know, pain is the one thing left you can feel. Mm. And nobody's ashamed of anything. So shame is just another career move. So there's so few arenas left. But I don't think it will ever be played out. I mean, mm. we'll never get tired of pain. Well, we'll never be completely un unshockable. Mm. You know, um, it's like Satyricon. <laughs> uh, you know, people trying more and more to feel something. And there's a great, Chris Hedges just gave a lecture at the Santa Monica's Women's Club, Santa Monica Women's Club, a couple of, I guess last week or the week before, where he talked about how, at the, you know, as empires fail, they retreat into this zone of, they're always looking for gratification. And you sort of live in this bubble of like, well, we, you know, it will all work out in the meantime, you know, let's either think Jesus is going to solve our problems or just fuck ourselves into some kind of uh, mind-numbing annihilation because that's all that there's left to do. Mm. And it's interesting that everything we're talking about through Hedge's perspective is kind of symptomatic of the end of an empire. Mm, that's, the parallels to ancient Rome are often sure. drawn, but you see them in this very visceral way. Yeah, mm. and uh, I think that's what's going on. They didn't have the tools at hand mm. that we do, but, you know, bored emperors bringing in, you know, children or prostitutes or women or the wives of other senators mm. to fuck and do whatever in front of them, that's what they had to do. Nothing has changed. Mm. It's just that the delivery systems have multiplied. Mm. The, the, this, this fatal boredom, you see it. Was this America? Is this the West, the developed world? What's, what's the falling empire? Well, it's America. Mm. It's absolutely America. Delusional America. Mm. Uh, living in a, in a world we're not even aware of. Mm. Uh, you know, back to, back to Jeremy Scahill. You know, we're out there killing... On uh, JSOC, the secret wing of the armed forces that is out there, or, or just droning somebody when Obama has his meeting every Tuesday. You know, it's inconceivable to know that every Tuesday they meet in the White House and decide who's going to get killed. Um, not because it's shocking, but because it isn't shocking. Right. But because this is the world we live in now, 
So as an artist of any kind, let alone a, a novelist, what are you trying to do? Are you, are you trying to provide escape, relief, insight, shock? I don't know. Point things out. Why aren't you? Look at look at this. Look at how you're not shocked at this. Well, horror Pretty shocking is very itself. comforting hmm. because the, the Stephen King role is very comforting because it's it's sort of a sanctioned right. kind of terror. But I think what's really horrifying and really terrifying is all that we don't know. You know, whether it takes a Snowden to let us know that uh, Philip K. Dick and William S. Burroughs saw it all coming. Hmm. Uh, or any of them, you know, myriad of other examples. I think the one thing shocking left is ripping the curtain on what we don't know and showing it to us, um, which I certainly didn't calculate to bring it back to these two books. But in retrospect, as is often the case, I don't know if you find this with your writing, you don't know what you were doing until you've done it. Never. Yeah, that's, you know, you just... If a, fr a friend of mine said once, you know, if you're writing for any reason other than to find out what you think, you're wasting everybody's time. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. And one of the reasons writing in Hollywood is, can be kind of tricky for me is because as if you're doing a studio project, for example, you sit around discussing its meaning and its <laughs> import and what this is supposed to invoke. And, and it's like slicing air, and it drives me crazy because I'm all I'm almost superstitious. Like I, I don't, you know, how do I know that's going to happen? Right. But that's the industry you're in, and that's how that goes. But the freedom to freak yourself out uh, on the page is is one I don't I don't ever take for granted, you know. And the two fruits of that freedom, by the way, out this year, Bad Sex on Speed earlier this year, and Happy Mutant Baby Pills just about to come out on November 5th. I've been speaking with their author, Jerry Stahl. Jerry, thanks so much. If they give awards for segues, I think you are in the run. That was beautiful. Thank you very much. Great questions. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or at lareviewofbooks.org for the rest of the large stuff. Thanks.